listeners, and welcome to another episode of EMACast. I'm Lavinia Turian, a second-year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University, here today with OHSU's own Dr. David Zonis, who will be talking to us about extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or better known as ECMO, and the mobile ECMO program at OHSU. Well, thank you, Dr. Zonis, for agreeing to meet with me today. Uh, I was wondering if you'd start off by just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be where you are today. Sure. Um, so David Zonis, I'm a um, trauma surgeon and critical care surgeon. I am an associate professor of surgery here at OHSU, and I'm the medical director for the Trauma Surgical Intensive Care Unit, and also the founding director of the Extracorporeal Life Support Program, uh, which is ECMO, um, which is the more common term. And uh, we started that program here in 2016 is when we launched that program. Um, I, my background is I uh, obviously trained in general surgery and then um, subspecialty trained in both trauma, critical care, and burns, and um, <clears throat> was in the military for a number of years, and that's where I got involved with ECMO was uh, during my time with the, with the Air Force and uh, the use of ECMO for combat casualties and then also uh, a pre-hospital or pre-trauma um, center transport of those patients uh, worldwide. So ECMO has gone through a lot these mm-hmm. past few years since its start in 1972, and now it's been becoming more popular with more centers implementing it. So how did mobile ECMO come about at OHSU? Sure. So I think the most of to take a few steps back, um, like you said, you're absolutely right. It started in the 70s in adults, but it really never really clinically worked, um, and there were several randomized controlled trials that have tried to look for uh, a signal for ECMO to work in adults. Uh, There's a trial done in the late 70s, and um, it had a terrible outcome, about 10% survival in both groups. In the mid-80s, we tried again um, using a slightly different strategy, but that trial also resulted in a very poor outcome in adults. And um, in the 90s, they tried a third time, um, and that trial was stopped early due to futility. It wasn't until 2006 that we had the first randomized controlled trial, the CSER trial out of the United Kingdom, that really um, was a, a game changer uh, because it was for the first time that, and it was published around 2009, that um, that there was an outcome that showed a survival benefit as well as uh, a long-term survival benefit at six months out with, in terms of quality-adjusted life years, and it was also cost-effective. So it was a big deal. In that trial, interestingly, they didn't allow um, patients to be transported because there was a study that was done in the NHS and they didn't really have a, a robust system to transport patients on ECMO support. And in fact, some patients who were randomized to the study um, died before they got to the referral hospital because they could not transport them on support. There have been centers that have been transporting patients in ECMO for a number of years, uh, mostly out of Karolinska, so out of Northern Europe. And in the military, just by the nature of our operational requirements, um, we need to move patients anywhere, anytime. And that is how we kind of got into the ECMO transport business, uh, mostly because of moving um, combat casualties who had severe ARDS um, out of a war zone and to um, a level four hospital, which is sort of a, the equivalent of a major trauma center. We then also needed to be repatriate those patients back home, and so uh, my assignment for, before I moved to Portland was I was the trauma director and the ECMO director at Longitool uh, Hospital or Regional Medical Center, which is a, 
the largest hospital in Europe for the Department of Defense, and that's where we would move patients to. Uh, but then in order to get them back to the States, um, we had really no good mechanism, so often we would have the patients uh, managed at a partner hospital in southern Germany, and then once they came off ECMO support, we would uh, regulate them back to the U.S. on a standard critical care transport plane. Um, but then we started doing the transports uh, on our own um, in like late 2013, and we did. Um, I took care of the first transatlantic patient, so we flew that patient from Germany to San Antonio direct, um, and it was sort of a proof of concept that we could do it. And now there's a more robust program that's based out of San Antonio that has worldwide capability. We were able to take that model and. Uh, apply it in the civilian practice here and so we've partnered with the regional flight service um, in the Portland metro area to be able to offer the same type of um, capability. Rotary wing, fixed wing in Oregon and in Washington um, and we're uh, expanding that extension into the entire Pacific Northwest um, to include Idaho, Montana and Alaska so that we have a large catchment area of patients who may need that specialty care but really have no easy way of getting here because in most circumstances, once you get sick enough, you don't really have, um, you're beyond the scope of what a traditional critical care flight nurse um, can perform and so they need that next level of care above that and that's what we can offer. So it has come a very long way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so what were some of the major hurdles to bring it to a university hospital like OHSU as opposed to more in a combat area, international um, sure. hospitals? So I think the first barrier, so in, in the military environment we're very operational focused and so it's very mission focused. If you've got a patient who has a, or a, you know, a soldier who has a life-threatening problem and you need to move them to a place that has a capability, um, we had pretty much the green light from everyone to do that. It made a lot of sense. Now there were some barriers there as well but they were a little easier to overcome. Mm -hmm. In an academic environment, um, there are a lot of competing interests, and one of the most important things to do is to get the buy-in from the people who are actually taking care of these patients. And so ECMO is still evolving, and you know it's only been since the late you know, 2009, 2010 that we have some data that's now showing that there's um, it's an effective uh, treatment for severely injured you know, uh, and severely you know, really sick patients if you don't get over the barriers that ECMO is actually a modality that works, then you're not really going to get very far. And so we had to get the buy-in from the pulmonologists, from the medical intensivists, from the cardiovascular medicine specialists, that this was a modality that um, would be um, of great utility in a very select patient population. So it's sort of coming over, overcoming some of the biases that people have, and um, it didn't happen overnight. Um, we had to have a few really good wins and show that there was a role for it. And I think we've now been at the point where we um, have the buy-in and we, it's not just unique to our center. It's, this is, um, we see this all over the country. And when I go and I lecture on this, we find that it's, we, have, we run into some of the same issues at other hospitals that are now just slowly coming on board. So you touched upon the people that need to buy into this. Mm -hmm. um, who, so who makes up the mobile ECMO team that goes with you on these flights um, and then once you get back kind of helps establish the care for the patient? Sure. So our team is, um, it's a pretty small team um, that are highly trained. So it's a physician and a nurse and that's it. 
and uh, then we have the the team that um, is part of the standard flight team. So those typically a flight nurse and a pilot. So for rotary wing, um, you know, there's only so much air room on the aircraft, and so right. there's weight restrictions. There are physical space limitations, and you know, we, the goal is to move the patient rapidly but safely. So um, our team is is an intensivist, and uh, currently on our team, that intensivist can be trained as a surgeon, can be trained as an anesthesiologist, or trained as a um, as a as a medical intensivist. And so it doesn't really matter what their initial background is as long as they're ICU trained and ECMO trained. The nurses, similarly, we've got a very small team of highly skilled nurses who come out of all of our um, ICUs that take care of these patients, whether it's out of the medical ICU, the cardiovascular ICU, or the uh, uh, surgical ICU. So that's what makes up the team. And in order to become a member of the team, they have to have one be experienced taking care of patients on the ground and have experience, you know, with um, crew resource management, you know, managing complex um, patients, uh, making the ability to make um, emergency decisions, and and just be very competent at their job. And so that's the team that we have, um, and they they're all excellent. So can you walk us through what the process would be for um, a hospital out in a maybe a rural area? as a patient that is in need of ECMO and putting in that call and having the team go over there and bring them back. Sure. So the first thing I was try to do is make sure they call us early. And so if you, we get a call late into the disease process, there's nothing magical about ECMO. Like if they're going to do poorly um, because they've been 10, 14 days of, you know, traditional mechanical ventilation to support a patient with severe respiratory failure, um, putting them on ECMO is probably not going to salv- you know, work particularly well. The, the salvage rates are very, very low. So we always mm-hmm. try to get the calls in early and request them early. Once we get the call, it goes through our transfer center. They activate. They consult the ECMO attending. We make a determination if the patient qualifies. We've got a list of criteria, of both indications and potential contraindications, and it depends on whether it's for cardiogenic shock or it's for severe respiratory failure because they're two very different pathways. And then we'll get some additional consultants on board if we need to on the line. Everybody's on the phone call at the same time. And then we'll make a decision very quickly if that patient is appropriate or not appropriate. Um, as it turns out, only about 60% of the patients who we had consulted for actually need ECMO support. Um, and so it's often that, you know, there are cases where we bring somebody in, we'll go out and retrieve them, and it turns out that they didn't need ECMO, either their clinical condition changed or there's some other modality that we can use um, prior to ECMO that we can help manage the patient through. So once we make the determination, we activate the team, then we, um, there's an on-call team that can launch, and then we coordinate our uh, the mission with, um, with Life Flight and make a determination if the weather conditions are okay, and mm-hmm. if we are going to go by uh, rotary wing, so helicopter, or we're going to go by fixed wing, and that usually has to do with the distance between um, which hospitals making the referral and us, and then we go out with our with our team, and it sounds like you get an opportunity to see what the bag set looks like. So it's essentially it's a backpack um, with all of our supplies, um, a, a portable ultrasound that is on a little um, iPad, and um, the machine itself, and some of the cannulas. And so there's essentially three bags that we take with us, and it has everything that we need. So it sounds like this is not a decision you make lightly, whether to go or not to go. 
So during that phone call, how how long does it do you say approximately takes to get the phone call that the patient might need ECMO and then making the decision to fly out? So it, it really depends. Um, in some cases, what we'll do is if we get the phone call early enough, we will um, sometimes offer advice and say, hey, why don't you try this? You know, okay. maybe it's proning a patient or it's doing some other strategy and see if that works. And we'll give them, you know, six hours, 12 hours, and then we'll check back in again. If that does the trick, then sometimes we stand down on the team. If it seems like the patient is just getting progressively worse, we can launch the team immediately. And so that uh, usually means that we can be on our way within 90 minutes. Oh, wow. That's quite a fast turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> and where are some of the locations that you fly out to? Because I know there are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a center in Seattle as well as some in California. Mm -hmm. So how do you distribute the boundary lines? So uh, anyone who calls us, we're willing to go um, retrieve the patient. Um, in California, um, we tend to not, g we don't get very many calls from there because there are some more regional ECMO centers. They don't have transport capability by air, many of them. So if it's a question of um, if they can't get them to the other referral center, then we'll still potentially offer the, tr the transport in, um, you know, our catchment area is typically going to be in, the or in, in Oregon. Um, so, you know, we'll get patients that come out of Bend, um, out of um, Salem, out of Medford, uh, Eugene, and then all of Southwest Washington. So we'll see patients that we, that's, that's the most, those are typically the locations that we'll get patients from, but we've also um, had consultations from hospitals just outside of Seattle, um, either, you know, especially during peak flu season when right. their hospital was full and they are, there was, you know, they were looking for an ECMO center. Um, that's when we got called because it just has to do with capacity. So you mentioned the flu as one of the reasons mm -hmm. to call. Um, what are some of the other common indications for ECMO? So, so flu is the most common. Um, uh, ARDS, so acute respiratory distress syndrome, for whatever reason, and you know, it could be for severe pulmonary contusions after um, a traumatic injury. It could be influenza. It can be um, severe sepsis. You know, there are many reasons for patients to develop ARDS. Um, so that's the most common respiratory. Uh, indication for cardiogenic shock, it's going to be um, either primary cardiogenic shock, it could be post-cardiac arrest, it could be a VT storm, so a ventricular tachycardic storm, via a refractory ventricular fibrillation, um, post-cardotomy shock, so someone who may have under, been undergoing cardiopulmonary bypass for, um, you know, uh, a cabbage, and um, they can't, for a number of reasons, come off of traditional uh, CPB in the operating room. Um, it's a bridge to get them out of the operating room and allow their heart to recover. Uh, so that's another uh, pretty common indication. So it sounds like up in the middle there, um, you don't really have much staff or supplies mm -hmm. on hand. So mm -hmm. what are some examples of complications that have arised and how have you overcome them? Mm -hmm. So the goal with flying patients is to have a smooth flight and do and, and not do really any interventions, right? It's a really small space. It's really hard to access the patient. Mm -hmm. On a fixed wing, so on an airplane, it's a little bit easier. There's a little bit more wiggle room. On a helicopter, there's really very little room to do anything. So we drill and we practice and we run through all the contingency operations in the event that there's a, uh, you know, a bleeding complication or, or an air bubble is detected. So air, air in the system 
is a big deal. And so the machine will actually, uh, depending on which way we have the machine configured, can actually shut down the machine. And so we have to have an emergency plan um, and backup, and then a backup to the backup, and then a backup to that backup, so that we and we we run through these drills constantly, so that we um, we have a plan in place for when it, when any of those things happen. So probably, you know, air in the system is the most common. Thankfully, we haven't had that problem. Um, we try to make sure everything is secure on the ground and everything is set the way we want it before we take off so that uh, we make for a very uneventful flight. Uneventful would be good in this scenario, yeah. So can you tell us any uh, some examples or s interesting stories that you had with the mobile ECMO program of flying out to certain places and bringing back patients? So we've had, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, there's, there's the important piece about the patient. Um, we've taken care of some patients who um, I, have, I recall one that we had where uh, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to physically fit the patient in the aircraft because he was so tall that we weren't oh. sure that we were actually going to be able to get the patient in. Um, but they were very, very, obviously these patients are extremely ill. Um, and so we actually ended up having, um, I asked for the team to have both an ambulance and the helicopter there. And we parked them next to each other and decided that if they couldn't fit on the helicopter, we were not going to go back into the hospital. We were just going to turn to the other direction and put the patient in an ambulance and drive. Um, we preferred to fly because it's a f it's shorter and it's faster to get us you know back to the hospital. Right. Um, we were able to wedge him in um, and so we got that one to work. Um, there was another F case a few months ago again these are just the logistics that you don't you know hospital-based medicine is um, is one thing but then when you're doing it and you're kind of out on your own you have to think about some of the just the logistical concerns you know, so um, flying at night, flying in the dark, you know, you can't see very well. Mm. Uh, and so you want to make sure that everything is um, is set the way you want it to be. Um, so we had one where we uh, flew in to Roseburg, and it's a very small airport. And um, there's actually flying time restrictions where you um, you can't take off after a certain hour because um, of the visibility and so we were actually on a time frame where we had to get a patient out quickly or we were going to be stuck there and uh, so we were able to thankfully um, take off within like a we were kind of down to the last 10 minutes before the sun set and we were not literally going to not be able to fly and so yeah, there are some of those things where you have to just think about wow. you know crew rest and and the logistics of just um, of moving patients that is not sort of typically something you think of when you're in the hospital. Wow, yeah, that is quite a time crunch. Yeah. So the use of ECMO has uh, gained traction in the past few years. How do you see the use of mobile ECMO going moving on? So it'll probably, you know, in Europe, it's now being pushed out into the pre-hospital setting into EMS and for refractory cardiac arrest, um, there are some centers that will offer um, ECMO as part of the pre-hospital program, and so on the street, um, they can actually initiate care. Right. That is a different model than what we have in the States. It's sort of the stay and play versus the scoop and run model, and um, that's very physician-driven on you know for pre-hospital care. We don't really have that system here, but I can see some select cities with you know really mature EMS systems potentially wanting to adopt a model like that. Um, it, even if it's not pre-hospitally, it's likely that we'll start to see this more frequently in the emergency department. So ECMO-supported CPR is a, 
modality that's been around for a while, and the the data are still the data are looking better and better that patients have a reasonable outcome with neurologic you know they're neurologically intact when they get discharged from the hospital, and that we can potentially have recovery of about thirty percent of patients with refractory VTVF that um, need additional support for their cardiogenic shock beyond just advanced cardiac life support. In fact, the eCPR is now part of the algorithm for, and has been since 2015, for the American Heart Association ACLS algorithm. So it, I see more pre-ICU um, care, so in the emergency department, potentially even pre-hospitally. Okay. So that is still kind of a work in progress mm -hmm. currently. Yeah. Uh, so what, does the emergency room have a role currently with ECMO or mobile ECMO? Not for mobile ECMO. Um, the role will likely be is, as we evolve um, eCPR, that there'll be uh, an increased role for emergency medicine to play a part in one, identifying those patients, and then two, helping to get the patients uh, initially cannulated and getting them on support. So um, it's a complex system that requires multiple um, participants, but emergency medicine is probably, you know, they're, they're sort of at the forefront because they uh, they have to identify those patients for us. Right. It's a very important role. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Zonis, again for taking the time to speak with us about this topic, and hopefully we'll see ECMO, mobile ECMO uh, more prominent around, and maybe even the eCPR use in the emergency department. Great. Thanks.